Alright, welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, Episode 8, Diet Extremes, Keto versus Paleo Diet. These are two diets that are extremely popular right now, especially keto. We are going to talk about the ins and outs of both diets. We're going to compare and contrast them and talk about what's good, what's bad, what could be changed slightly, and why you may want to consider one of these. Okay, so let's jump right in. I'm going to start off with the keto diet. So when talking about the keto diet, or what's commonly called just as keto, then you have to understand the origins of that diet and the origins of what ketosis actually is. So let's start off by looking at ketosis or ketone bodies that are produced in the liver these get produced these are get produced by the fatty acids that are in the liver they get turned into what's called ketone bodies and this occurs when there's no more glycogen stores or free glucose in the body. And what this does is it basically, when you use up your glycogen stores from carbohydrates, so when you ingest carbohydrates or sugars, they form glucose in the body. They break down to glucose. And that glucose gets stored as glycogen in the muscle and in the liver. When you burn up all of those glycogen stores, that's the first energy your body goes to when you're burning nutrients for energy and metabolism. And when all those are gone, then your body will flip into what's called ketosis. And again, it's produced by these fatty acids that sit in the liver. And what that does essentially for metabolism is you start burning fat as fuel instead of sugar. That might sound really good um, at first glance. And unless you know that metabolic process, you may want to just kind of jump on the bandwagon. But we're going to take a deeper look at what is going on in the physiology and what all that entails. This diet started from medical origins. This diet was meant for epileptics. So what happens when ketones are emitted by the liver, they go through the blood and they cross the blood-brain barrier, which when that happens, they act as an anticonvulsive. So if you're having epileptic seizures, that is a time where ketosis could really benefit you. So being low carbohydrate on a diet where there is a medical need, this could be very powerful. And there's a lot of research um, that it helps quite a bit. What this diet has come into is a little bit different. It's created a bit of a craze on 
a way to lose weight, which was never the original intent for this diet. This diet's been around a long time, and it's been well known in the medical community that ketones provide a very powerful anti-convulsive. And I won't bore you with kind of the mechanistic reasons why that's true, but that is very true, that low-carbohydrate affects the brain and ketosis really does affect the brain. So the breakdown of these macronutrients are essentially 30 to 35 percent proteins, 55 to 60 percent fats, and then just 5 to 10 percent overall calories in carbohydrate. So you can see that it's a very restricted carbohydrate diet. You can still have a little bit of carbohydrate and it won't take you out of ketosis. Um, But it's a pretty extreme diet, and one that, again, unless there's a really crucial medical need, like having seizures, you may not want to be super hardcore about it, because there can be some long-term effects due to staying in prolonged ketosis, which we're going to get into. And besides intentional carbohydrate restriction, you, de- you do see ketosis pop up in other circumstances. So unmanaged type 1 diabetes is another reason where ketosis um, pops up kind of unintentionally. Type 1 diabetes, your pancreas doesn't produce insulin, which in return, so insulin helps, it's what shuttles glucose into the cells and into the muscle, essentially. It's, it needs insulin, glucose needs insulin to become glycogen in the body. So when your pancreas isn't producing insulin, then it doesn't get into the cells. And so the body thinks it doesn't have glucose. For energy, so it starts breaking down fat for energy, and what this can do is called it's called diabetic ketoacidosis, um, and eventually it will you'll start seeing ketones in the urine. You'll start peeing out these ketone bodies, and if that goes unreg- unregulated and unmanaged long enough, then you can slip into a coma, and that's what a diabetic coma is all about. You also will see ketones present if you do any type of fasting. So I'm going to kind of lump in intermittent fasting with this because at about 12 hours of not eating, substantial amounts of any calories coming from any of the micro or macronutrients, your body will start to produce some ketones. And I want to talk about intermittent fasting more in a little bit, but I want to finish with alcoholism and ketosis. So when you're drinking heavily and you end up getting a fatty liver, what that does is the body releases ketones in order to try to metabolize some of that fat on the liver. And when you have ketones and glucose, 
in the blood at the same time, it can be really, really hard on the liver specifically. And a lot of times that's where you lead to liver disease or cancer of the liver um, from drinking. So it's this delicate balance um, of keeping things kind of regulated. Also, carbohydrates help the body absorb alcohol. So a lot of times if you do, you know, a night of heavy drinking, um, that's why your body is craving carbohydrates. I mean, think about all the college-aged kids who go out to the bars, drink a bunch, and then just crave french fries and fried food, right? They're craving carbohydrates for a reason. It's because carbohydrates help kind of pull out the alcohol from the blood a little bit. They help absorb that. Um, and so if you're on a keto diet, it becomes really hard to drink uh, because you get drunk extremely easily because you really have no carbohydrates to buffer that blood alcohol, that content that ends up kind of hitting the brain and the rest of the body. So if you're on a keto diet, um, definitely be aware that your alcohol tolerance is going to be virtually zero. If you're truly on a keto diet, it's going to make it pretty tough. And it can be, um, it can be pretty hard on the body. So that's one aspect of this as well. Okay, so back to intermittent fasting or what could be called cyclical ketosis. This is a pretty cool approach, actually, because you are doing multiple things in kind of one calculated discipline. So when you, again, when you fast for roughly 12 hours, then your body starts to produce a little bit of ketones, which is kind of where intermittent fasting comes in, or this idea of cycling in and out of ketosis a little bit. It can change your metabolism, so you start burning a little bit of fat, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You just don't want to be doing that day in and day out. So this idea of intermittent fasting... I mean, that's one that historically would have been used a little bit. And you see that with our ancestors and hunter-gatherers um, and the different practices that have been passed down for years and years. Um, you know, you think back to even, you know, ancient texts of the Bible um, and their methods of fasting, this idea of letting the digestion rest and letting metabolism kind of take a bit of a break. Um, it's one that's been very, very well recognized in being pretty healthy and something that should be done periodically to just give things a bit of a respite. A lot of times you do this when you're sick without even really knowing it. That's why you lose your appetite if you're sick. 
um, and this is done for a variety of purposes. So when you stop eating, your stomach will, and your GI tract will kind of shrink down. But what also happens is that it enhances the white blood cell production in the gut. So 70 plus percent of your total immune system is held in your gut. And when you don't eat, it it basically enhances the immune system for a short time. And so when you're sick, by not having an appetite and not eating a lot of calories, you're actually boosting your immunity. Um, You see this in all the mammals, essentially. If you've ever had a dog that's been sick, you'll notice they don't eat. Um, This is a very well-understood process uh, and one that, again, has been practiced for a long time. And there were times where people would go in and out of ketosis based on what they were eating um, and based on the seasons, but it wasn't something that was intentionally done. I want to make that relatively clear that um, ketosis for a prolonged period of time, more than, you know, I don't know, a matter of weeks or into months, you need to start being pretty careful because you'll start seeing effects on the body. That being said, if you're morbidly obese and you have a ton of fat to burn, um, you could get away with it a little bit longer because there's so many fat reserves. I mean, you could essentially, that would be one way to lose weight is to essentially starve yourself, you know, which um, there's been accounts of people literally just kind of hydrating with IVs and vitamins and water and going, there's some accounts of people going up to a year literally without eating food because there's so much fat reserves in the body. Now, I wouldn't recommend that at all. That's a pretty foolish approach, and you definitely would end up with some underlying health concerns doing it that way. But as far as just surviving something like that, it theoretically could be done. I wouldn't recommend that, though. So this idea of cycling in and out every, you know, two or so days or something like that, you know, during the week, may not be a bad idea for people that are wanting to kind of ramp up their metabolism. I mean, as I've said before, a lot of us in especially Western societies are overeating. And I don't just mean overeating calories, but just overeating in general, which means overdigesting, which is why with intermittent fasting, I never, ever recommend calorie restriction Meaning that if you're going to intermittent fast, make sure you're getting the calories necessary to maintain your ideal weight. So traditionally, that's about 2,500 calories a day for the adult person. So if you're going to intermittent fast, then make sure you're hitting around 2,000 to 2,500 calories a day, and you'll still get added benefit of heightened metabolism and that fat burning mechanism that goes along with ketosis. And I do this periodically. So typically what I will do is I'll stop eating 
let's say about seven o'clock at night, and then I won't eat again until sometimes, you know, at least seven in the morning or oftentimes later. Sometimes I'll go 16 hours. So I'll push that back to, you know, nine o'clock or even 11 o'clock in the morning the next day. Um, And it just, again, it helps kind of reestablish the immune system a little bit and kind of ramp up that metabolism and gives things a bit of a break. Again, it's not something I do all the time. I just do it periodically, maybe once every couple of months or twice, maybe every couple of months. And I'll just kind of pay attention to kind of how I'm feeling. If I'm feeling things kind of get sluggish in my digestion or I'm feeling like I just need a bit of a break, then I'll take a break. And there's nothing wrong with that. But again, I don't calorie restrict either. So I'll oftentimes eat a big meal at the end of the day. If I'm not eating kind of throughout the day, sometimes I'll just eat dinner, but I'll make sure I'm getting about 2,000 calories in that one meal. Um, that's okay to do too. Again, I wouldn't advocate doing that all the time, but if you do that occasionally, it um, can be pretty beneficial. Okay, so that is a bit of an overview about the keto diet and getting your body into ketosis. Um, really, it's important to note that it can be beneficial, but like any extreme diet, there is pros and cons, and you're going to have to weigh them accordingly. The other thing to be mindful of when reintroducing carbohydrates coming off of a keto diet, your body will tend to want to kind of hoard that glucose or that glycogen, and it can be easy to put on a little bit of weight gain. So you're going to want to come out of that pretty slowly, or make sure you're just keeping like 10% of your diet all the way through carbohydrate rich, because your body's not going to yo-yo quite as much coming out of that. But that is something to keep in mind, that sometimes people will experience a little bit of weight gain while reintroducing carbohydrates back into their diet. And another thing is that it can also be, again, hard on the liver. So It's, in my opinion, not a diet that you should be really strict about unless absolutely medically necessary with something like an extreme epilepsy. Okay, let's move on to the paleo diet. Like the keto diet, it is a low-carb focused diet. So the macronutrient breakdown of the paleo diet is pretty similar to the keto diet. It is 30% protein, 40% fat, and then about 30% carbohydrate. So it's a little more balanced across the board. And that kind of goes in line with historically what people were eating, just macronutrient kind of ratio levels that people were eating. So it rings a little bit truer than some of the other fad diets. The thing that Um, is different about the paleo diet is that it really focuses on not a lot of processed sugars and refined carbohydrates. This is a diet that a lot of people think is new. Um, A lot of people think it kind of hit in the 2000s, but it actually is from the 1970s. It just didn't gain any type of following until about the 2000s. There was a little tiny cult following kind of, you know, when it first got introduced by a gastroenterologist in the 70s, but it didn't really pick up steam until 
pretty recent. Really, it was very much a whole fruit approach, you know, and one that was supposed to be aligned with what we kind of biologically ate as hunter-gatherers and as a species in general before the Neolithic Revolution began. It was an attempt to kind of go back to that as much as possible. And if you look at the original diet from when it was kind of founded in the 1970s, it focused on zero grain consumption and zero dairy consumption. Whereas when it got popularized by the CrossFit community in the 2000s, they altered that a little bit. So some grains were relatively acceptable and a little bit of dairy was acceptable. Um, So there's been a bit of a tweak to kind of market it and make it a little bit more sustainable. Um, But overall, I think it's a little more balanced and a little more in line. It's closer than, let's say, an Atkins diet to what humans should naturally be eating. And I'm all for it, really. Um, If this is kind of where you land, it's going to be way better than a standard American diet or a sad diet, as we like to call it in nutrition, because that is a very sad diet. I mean, this is going to be way better than going and eating fast food and hot dogs. So if you, if this is where you end up, if you end up with less processed food and grass-fed meats and going to your local farmer's market, then I'm all for it. But my critique about this diet is that it didn't differentiate between the quality of the foods that you're eating, between the different genetics that you're eating from the food you're getting. It focused more on domesticated foods and a little bit into the quality of meat and protein. Beef would be the example of that. You know, they advocated for grass-fed and grass-finished beef, which is going to be way better for your body than eating grain-fed and finished beef. Because what that does is it alters the amino acid profile in the meat that you're eating. When you're feeding cattle on food that they weren't biologically meant to eat, then their genetics and amino acids of that meat are going to be fundamentally altered. And when you're consuming that meat, that means your amino acids and genetics are going to be fundamentally altered. So I just don't think they took this quite far enough. I think... If you're going to do this, then you should reach for more wild foods. And that's essentially where I have landed with my nutrition is that that's why I got into hunting and foraging and fishing. And I'm not saying you have to get there. You can buy some of those wild foods from people that are doing it and selling it. Um, But I think you can make relatively easy substitutions to factor in more wild foods into your diet. You may have to pay a little bit more, but you're going to be way healthier, and it's actually going to save you money in the long run, and you're going to invest in your health for the future. Not just your health, but your children's and grandchildren's health, which really brings us kind of back to that community piece. That's why we should be eating food and good food in the first place. So I want to give you an example of a wild food dinner you could prepare and have it kind of lean towards this paleo type of fad diet. 
So you could walk into a supermarket, say a Whole Foods or something like that, and you could pick up a fillet of wild salmon. You could also, in the fall, maybe find some wild foraged mushrooms like chanterelle mushrooms or mataki that have been wild foraged and then sold to the supermarket. You could buy true wild rice that is hand harvested and winnowed by Native American cultures in the Great Lakes region or Wisconsin. You could often find mustard greens or sometimes you can find wild foraged leeks or ramps at Whole Foods depending on where you're at and the time of the year. So you could put that meal together and it would be a completely wild food meal that you paid for, meaning that you wouldn't have to do the fishing and the foraging to get those foods. Now, if you do, how fantastic is that? Because you get to be a part of that process and you get to immerse yourself in that entire food system. But it's not always an approachable thing for a lot of people. Sometimes people don't have the time or they don't have the interest in doing that. But I just wanted to throw that idea out there that there are real substitutions that you can make to lean toward a more wild food diet without actually participating in getting those wild foods off of the landscape yourself. I mean, probably the easiest thing to forage anywhere would be dandelion greens. And that could be another great substitution if you want to do a salad. Try subbing in a little bit of dandelion green. Mix it in with some romaine lettuce or something like that or spinach that you bought. And that's going to provide you with a lot different of a nutrient profile and medicine and taste that you're used to. And that's something that's free. And that's what's really cool about foraging plants and mushrooms is that that stuff's free. You just have to be willing to go out and get it. And I think a lot of people can. They've just a lot of times never been even introduced or entertained the thought that they can do that. But again, if you don't want to do any of that, you don't have to. A lot of times there's a market for that and people want you to buy their wild foraged foods. Now, meat is a little bit harder unless you're talking about fish because we don't have any market hunting here in the United States. That's outlawed. You're not allowed to buy wild game. So when you see things like venison on a menu or in the store, all that is farmed deer meat, um, which, again, is why grass-fed meat, um, it's closer to that wild game meat. It's not exactly the same but it's a lot closer and you're going to be a lot better off eating grass-fed, grass-finished beef than you are a conventional raised livestock in a factory farm scenario. You're going to be a lot healthier if you do that. And you could potentially, depending on where you live, go directly to a farm and buy beef off of a cattle rancher. There's always options to go a little bit of a half step or a full step in the direction of 
knowing where your food comes from. And I think the more you can do that, the more you can look for opportunities to know where your food is coming from, the better it's going to be for your overall health. If you're lucky enough to live on a coast, then buying fish from the boats off the docks is a lot of times an option. Or a step closer would be chartering a fishing boat. It's usually relatively inexpensive if you do what's called a head boat, or it's basically a communal boat where you'll you'll just pay a small fee and you'll jump on a boat with some strangers and they'll take people out fishing for the day and you're able to catch a lot of fish sometimes. And it's actually usually a pretty fair price point for the protein that you can bring in. That's something my wife and I enjoy doing once or so a year. We will do a charter boat and we'll be able to catch our fish that way. And it's a lot cheaper than buying your own boat and having all your own gear. Um, It's a great way to get fresh fish. And then you can just put that in the freezer and have it throughout the year. Another thing that is an easy opportunity to gather wild protein is clamming or gathering oysters. Um, And that's a great one to do with a family if you have kids to get them involved because usually it's just kind of strolling along a beach for oysters or like manila clams. You can you just go pick those up or mussels even when you're looking at like razor clams or something like that that are in the Pacific Northwest. I used to dig for those on the coast. Um, you need a clam gun because they dig themselves into the sand a bit, but still a super fun activity and one that um, is a pretty low entry point into the wild foods world, both cost-wise and, I guess, technique-wise or commitment-wise. It doesn't take a lot. I mean, you can have a shovel and go dig clams, Um, and you can get a lot of different ages participating in that activity. Again, bringing it back to kind of a community-oriented practice. Or if you're more curious about foraging, then there's great foraging workshops all over the country that you could sign up for and you could learn a few plants in your region and be able to go and get those. There are always opportunities to engage with food in and around your landscape. And so to kind of bring this back around to the paleo diet, to me that is more of a paleo diet than maybe what's marketed as a paleo diet. That's much more in line with what we used to do before this surplus of food from a modern agriculture practice where you had to remain sedentary to take care of crops. Again, great to have them, you know, use domesticated food crops because there can be great food produced from those. But also know that there's a whole other world out there that usually provides better nutrition and a healthier life way than just eating very conventionally grown or produced food. And really, I think that's what the paleo diet should have been about all those years ago. I mean, if you're looking for real nutrition, again, that is the best nutrition you can be supplying your body with. And so do your best to just inch your way closer to a more natural diet that we've always been eating. And if you want to talk about carbohydrates off of a natural or wild landscape, that's actually a pretty easy switch. Really, you're looking at removing 
processed white sugar and substituting it with maybe wild honey, wild raw honey, or maple syrup. And both of those are packed with things that will actually supply your immune system with additive nutrients rather than just be this ultra-processed or refined sweetener that you get no real benefit from except pure carbohydrate. So that is another really easy substitution to do and one that is, again, going to be a lot more in line with your biology and in line with your genetics. One thing that I always do is when I look at things, I frame them or look at them through a lens of what are my biological norms? What can I do to supply my body with food that we have been biologically eating for the last 300,000 years? And it's a very different approach than when I pull out some snack foods and they have a paleo label on them. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world. I know that they're going to be a little healthier than, you know, some other snack food that I'm eating. But this is a different way to look at the paleo diet. I mean, what I'm talking about is a lot more in line with what a quote-unquote paleo diet actually was. And that's where these, all of these fad diets and extreme diets tend to go, is they tend to go into the diet industry, and they're able to profit pretty significantly off of any of these diets. So keto diet, I mean, you see keto-friendly labels and stuff all the time on things now. They're making good money off of those. Paleo diet, that was really popularized, again, by the CrossFit community and that whole kind of movement where they kind of co-opted that diet and made it a part of their kind of overall, um, I guess, plan. And again, they made a lot of money off of that. And it wasn't a new diet. It had been around since the 70s, but they just kind of took that approach. And not to say that these diets are bad, but they're there for specific reasons. And when they really get popularized and the public really starts to latch onto them, you know that there's money to be made there. And so really, my goal with looking at these fad diets is just to not only debunk them a little bit and demystify them a little bit, but to really frame in what a diet should be because it's so easy to become lost in all of these different diets that we lose perspective on what a diet even is or could be moving ahead into the future. So I really want to drive this point home that if you are coming across a new diet, look at it through the lens of One, is this biologically sustainable? And two, is this a biologically normal diet for the human species to be eating for generations? And that last part, for generations, is extremely important. It's an extremely important concept that gets missed a lot. Again, 
I talked a little bit about how we've kind of individualized diets and food in general. And I think it's a huge mistake because we've lost the concept and we've lost the longevity in a lot of diets, generational longevity. And so I am going to press this issue pretty hard. It's one that needs to be looked at with a lot of consideration if we want to supply our kids and grandkids and their kids and grandkids with ample nutrition to get them through what's ahead. And if you're sitting there thinking that, well, I've already raised my kids, so I can just worry about my health, think about the opportunity and the invitation of teaching maybe your grandkids at a very early age how to interact and build a healthy relationship surrounding food. That really is kind of the job of the elders. At least it was traditionally through communities. They passed down these very fundamental life skills that they had deep connection with to the upcoming generations. So they had an easier time sifting through the stuff that's already been learned. And I feel like that is another aspect of this culture where we have a lot of people that are old, but we don't have that many elders. I mean, we are essentially going into the fourth generation now that have been virtually disconnected from the natural environment and the natural landscape. Of course, people don't have a ton of intimate knowledge to pass on. They've been disconnected from it. That's not always the case, or 100% of the time. Certainly, there has been generations of people and family members that have stayed in touch with this stuff and still have very rooted and deep values to the natural world. But by and large, that's starting to slip away. And I think we are starting to see some ramifications of that, not only in our physical health, but also our mental health. Because a lot of times food isn't just about supplying your body with nutrition. Food becomes about other things too. It becomes about community. And without community, without having proper social ties, you're not going to be a very healthy person. You don't do this thing alone. We never have as a human species. So, I mean, as you can start to see, the USDA reformulating the food pyramid into my plate and baiting macronutrient ratios of fats, carbohydrates, and proteins really misses a lot of what nutrition and what food is about. And it's really easy to get bogged down with this reductionist technique of nutrition. Think about the numerous debates and studies and debating of those studies that have gone into what is a good human diet or what is the best diet for humans. But what all of those studies fail to take into account is that they look at domesticated food. They don't look at any type of wild food in the diet because everybody's focused on domesticated agriculture and food production. And really all I'm saying is take a step back. Look at it from a perspective of 300,000 years versus a perspective of I'm healthy, so therefore I'm eating a good diet. It's a very different perspective when you're looking at it from generation to generation rather than 
just person to person. Because lab tests aren't everything. Reductionist data isn't everything. They're just a piece of the very complex puzzle that is human nutrition. And man, once you really start to look at who is funding all this research and studies for something like the ADA, which is American Dietetics Association, you start realizing that a lot of the funding is coming from companies that really don't have your health in their best interest. Most of the ADA's funding comes from companies like Coca-Cola and General Mills and Kellogg and Pepsi. I mean, none of those companies really scream a healthy, balanced lifestyle to me. So what I'm getting at is that there is some bias in the research that's done. Like in many other areas of health or any type of science, there's going to be funding bias towards what gets promoted as health and unhealth. So again, you can put faith and well-being in corporations that have been around maybe 150 years, or you can put your trust and faith in a species that has been around the last 300,000 years, and really just the last 10,000 years of that have been this experiment of mass-produced agriculture, which is why I have such a focus on anthropology. And new data is great. I'll take it all day long, but I'm always going to put it back through the lens of anthropological data and what humans have been doing since the beginning. Okay, so that will about do it for this episode on fad diets of keto and paleo. Um, Hopefully there are some things to think about in this episode. If you guys would like to discuss any of these concepts further, please go and sign up for the Ancestral Elements Forum. If you go to ancestralelements.com slash community, you can find the forum there. And we talk each week about the episodes that have been released, about topics people want to dive deeper into. It's a place where we can kind of throw ideas around and communicate further with these sometimes complex topics. Also feel free to email me. My email is info at ancestralelements.com, and I would be more than happy to have correspondence with you there. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.